If you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll be in verses 31 and 32 this morning. Um, go ahead and open there and then maybe put a little, your little marker in your Bible or if you've got it on your device, wherever, look that up as well on Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 to 12. Take a look at both of those texts this weekend together. But we'll start off in Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 31. We'll read down through verse 32. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Been working our way through Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, taking a look at what he says about being a countercultural community uh, in the midst of a culture and the church would be upside down. There'd be an upside downness to the church in this particular culture and an inside outness in this particular culture as well. And so we continue to plow through what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 5. Beginning in verse 31, he says this. He says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as we've been working our way through Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he says some pretty challenging things to us. He talks about being poor in spirit, those individuals who recognize they have nothing to offer to God. So they come before him as spiritually bankrupt beggars who are humble in meekness, but who are hungering for righteousness. We've seen Jesus talk to us about um, the, the authority of his word, of us living underneath the authority of scripture, not above scripture, but underneath it. We've seen Jesus talk to us about our anger and how that is the seed of murder, about our lust and how it is the seed of adultery. Jesus says some very challenging things in the Sermon on the Mount that run against the grain of our culture and the stories that are being formed within our culture. But I want you to know that everywhere that Jesus says something to challenge us, he says it out of compassion to heal us, not out of an opinion to harm us. And that is no different whenever we come to a text like this. See, Jesus' teachings, he doesn't just stand up and deliver his opinions that are intended to harm or to hurt us, but he delivers truth with compassion that he's aiming to heal and put us back together, not tear us apart. And I think whenever we come to some of the challenging teachings of Jesus within the scriptures, we typically think that they're there to harm us, not to heal us. And I want you to see what he says through those lenses this morning and not through the lens that we typically and commonly bring to the text with us of going, man, that's really painful. No, that's very redemptive and it's very healing. And Jesus is aiming to make us whole, not less than whole. Does that make sense? And so whenever we come to a text like this that really challenges some of the per perspectives within our culture, I want us to approach it through those lenses. You see, we live, I think this text is very pertinent to us because we live in a culture of disposable commodities, don't we? Uh, every week when I go to the store, I pick up several things. I pick up some paper plates, right? Because uh, whenever we have family meals together, oftentimes we eat on disposable plates that we can just pick up. You don't have to wash the things. They don't go in the dishwasher. They just go in the trash can. You can throw them away. Or we pick up disposable forks or disposable cups whenever we have big parties, right? We live in a culture of disposable commodities. And listen, there's nothing wrong with having disposable commodities in your pantry. But the problem is, is in a very consumer-oriented culture where there's tons of disposable commodities out there, that has bled over into the realm of some of our most serious and lasting commitments, Right? It's bled over into the realm of the way that we choose churches. And we, so we use churches many times and we, 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 we use them for all that they're worth and then we move on to the next one. 
Right, or we use relationships that way. We use friendships, and sometimes it bleeds over into the most lasting and enduring, the most deep and developing relationships of our lives into our families, into our marriages. Right, we begin to view marriage as a disposable commodity as well. And whenever it ceases to make us happy, whenever it ceases to fulfill us, whenever it ceases to um, make us have all the little butterflies in our stomach that we used to have whenever we first met that person, we treat them as a disposable commodity and we trade them in or we trade them up. See, that kind of disposable consumer mentality has bled over into these deep, what are supposed to be deep and lasting relationships within our lives. And the context in Jesus' day was really not much different Because in Jesus' day, he was speaking into a culture where marriage many times was viewed as a disposable commodity as well. In fact, what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5 is not all that Jesus says in Matthew's gospel about marriage and divorce and even about singleness. And so if you go down to Matthew chapter 19, you pick up in verse 3 and read down through verse 12, I think what we have in Matthew chapter 5 is kind of an abridged version of the fuller teaching that Jesus gives, and I think some of that gets picked up in Matthew chapter 19 as Matthew records it there. But listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 19. He says, and he sets up the context a little bit, he says, the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife, except for sexual immorality. And Mary, I'm sorry, and I say to you, or he said, blah, 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 blah. But from the beginning it was not so. Let me just go ahead and, and get back on track there. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. See, Jesus is speaking into a culture and into a context, into a contested issue within his day that's not much different than ours. And I want to say this from the outset before we begin to look at the text and really begin to dig into it in much detail. Is to say this, is that if you're here this morning, right, Jesus covers all the bases, doesn't he? Those who are married, those who are divorced, and those who are single in this text. And we're going to hit all those bases this morning together before we're done. But I want to say this, if you're here this morning and you're on the backside of a divorce, or you've been remarried, I want you to know that God does not hate you and neither do we. There is a very, there's a stigma attached to divorce within our culture and particularly many times within the church. And I want you to know that there is forgiveness and there is grace and there is mercy available in Jesus Christ. And so if you've experienced that heartache and that pain, the depth of that destruction and that damage within your life, I want you to know that God does not hate you and neither does this church. But he loves you and so do we. 
And I want you to know that you're not a second-class citizen within God's kingdom and that you're able to be a part of God's purposes and his plans for redeeming men and women from all nations and backgrounds and walks of life. He's able to use you as a vessel, as an instrument for his glory and the good of this world, regardless of the pain that you've walked through and maybe some of the baggage that you feel like you're bringing into this room this morning. So before we even get into the text, I just want to get that out of the way. And I'm going to try and be as sensitive as I possibly can. I know that sometimes I'm not very sensitive. And so I want to try and be as sensitive as I possibly can and speak with compassion. Not pull any punches because Jesus doesn't, but also speak with a tenderness and a compassion and a kindness in the way that Jesus does with the intent and the aim to heal and not to hurt. Does that make sense? And so that's where we want to go this morning. See, in Jesus' day, he's speaking into a culture where marriage was oftentimes viewed as a disposable commodity, just like in our day and time. See, in Jesus' day, there was a couple of schools of thought with the rabbis, the teachers, that surrounded the interpretation of a word out of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. In Deuteronomy 24, chapter 24, verse 1, Moses says, if a man's going to find an indecency with a woman that he has taken to be his wife, he's able to write her a certificate of divorce and put her away. That's how the language is worded in Deuteronomy 24. And the interpretation, there were two schools of thought around the interpretation of the word indecency in Deuteronomy 24. There was one school of thought that said that indecency was only an instance of sexual misconduct or sexual immorality or adultery. In fact, it even even referred to maybe a man taking a woman to be his wife and being with her for the first time on her wedding night and there are things that should happen if the woman's a virgin and those things not happening and you're finding an indecency within her like, like she came to him as if she were a virgin and she were not that he could write her a certificate of divorce and put her away. Or if in the marriage she began to become a, a little bit flirtatious and began to run around, that he could write her a certificate of divorce and put her away. That was one school of thought. The indecency was sexual misconduct. The other school of thought played very fast and loose with that term indecency. Right? And so, in, so a man could find his, woman, his wife's cooking to be indecent. right? And so her, her, he, he, she burned her breakfast one too many times. His breakfast one too many times. And so that's indecent to him. right? Or maybe as she's aged, the attraction that he once felt for her, the physical chemistry that he once felt with her has waned some. And so that's an indecency for him. And so it could have been really anything that he found to be indecent within his wife. He could write her a certificate of divorce and put her away. And whenever those Pharisees come to Jesus, they're going, Jesus, you're a teacher. Why don't you give us, why don't you weigh in on this issue? Why don't you give us your interpretation of the word indecency? And I find it very interesting when the Pharisees come to him and they say, listen, Jesus, weigh in on the issue. What is permissible to write a certificate of divorce and put your wife away, to divorce her? Jesus doesn't wade into that issue, but what Jesus does is he turns the discussion away from permissions for divorce to a discussion of God's design for marriage. Right, Jesus says, listen, I'm, I'm not going to get caught up in your little trap here. I'm not going to weigh in on this issue. I'm going to turn the conversation away from divorce to God's design. What did God design from the beginning? And that's what Jesus presses into in Matthew 19. And in the context, Jesus talks about marriage. In the context, Jesus talks about divorce. And in the context, Jesus talks about singleness. Now, there's not a person in this room that doesn't hit this morning, right? Because you're in the room and you're either married, 
in a, in, a, in a marriage relationship or you're in the room and you've been, maybe been through a divorce. Maybe you're in the room, you've been through a divorce and now you're remarried or you're in the room this morning and you're single and you've never been married. But regardless of where you are within those three categories, it hits everyone in the room this morning and we're going to hit all of those things as we work through the text together this morning as well. And we're going to take them in order that they come. Jesus starts by talking about marriage. And what he does, whenever he turns a conversation toward God's design for marriage, he turns it to say that God from the very beginning designed marriage to be a covenant relationship, not a contractual relationship. You know what the difference is between a covenant and a contract? Right, a contract, whether it's a business contract or whether you're purchasing a home and you've got to sit down and sign 1,873 pieces of paper with your initials and signatures down at the bottom, at the end of the day, regardless of how, long, how many trees were cut down to print the paper for that contract. At the end of the day, with all the fine print and all the stipulations, you're saying this, if you do these things for me, I will do these things for you. That's what a contractual relationship is. You provide these goods and services and I'll provide payment. If I stop providing payment, then you're no longer contractually bound to provide goods and services. If you stop providing goods and services, I'm no longer contractually bound to provide you payment. And in a contractual setting, there are many folks who have taken that understanding of a, of a social contract of marriage and they've applied it to their of, of relationships and they've applied it to their marriage. And they enter into marriage saying, well, if you do these things for me, then I will do these things for you. If you fulfill your vows and commitment to me, then I'll fulfill my vows and commitment to you. But a covenantal relationship is Completely counter to that because in a covenant it says this, whether you do these things for me, I'm standing before God and my family and my friends and taking a vow that I'm going to fulfill my vows to you. I'm going to fulfill my covenant. I'm going to fulfill my obligations that I've committed and pledged and promised to you, whether you reciprocate those things or not. That's a covenant. That's not a contract. And whenever Jesus views marriage, he views it not in a contractual sense, but in a covenantal sense. In fact, there are some within our day and time who are actually advocating for term limits on marriages, right? So they say, listen, if, if, here, here's the deal. So that no one has to walk away with the stigma of divorce or the pain and heartache of that. Let's do this. Let's bind ourselves together for five years. We've got a term limit on this deal, right? Five years. If at the end of five years, you're still satisfied, I'm still satisfied, then we'll re-up the commitment for another five years. But that's not how Jesus views marriage. Listen to what he says in the text. In verses 4 to 6, when Jesus turns the conversation back toward God's design, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, I want you to notice several things here in the text. The first one is this, right? You're going to go, man, I'm not sure where this is going, but just follow me for a moment, okay? The first one is this. In this text, you see that gender is not a product of psychological constructs, but biological creation. So it's not a product of me looking inside to determine how I feel, but it's a, it's a product of looking up to see how God has created me. 
says that he creates us male and female. And in creating us male and female, he creates us in such a way that maleness complements femaleness and femaleness complements maleness. It's a part of God's original biological design and creation in the way that he brings men and women into being. So gender is not the product of me looking inside and determining who I'm attracted to or how I feel about a, how I feel about my body, but it's a product of understanding how God has designed and created and formed and fashioned me. That's what Jesus says here in the text, that God created them male and female. The second thing to notice is this, is that marriage is not a human invention, but it's a divine institution. So that because God created with maleness and femaleness, he says, therefore, therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two should become one flesh. It wasn't that we invented marriage, but that God instituted marriage from the time of creation for the well-being of all humankind. In fact, when you travel from culture to culture, you're going to find that invariably any culture that you've come across on the face of the earth has some some semblance of this covenant relationship rooted deeply within its societal fabric and structures. That God designed it in such a way that a man and a woman would come together and they'd be bound together as one flesh. They would leave these social settings that they find, their families of origin, to create a new family and their maleness and femaleness would complement each other in such a way that they're able there to give birth to children who would become, and that, would, that, that unit would become the foundation, the fabric of societies and that this is God's design that he instituted it that we didn't invent it and so because we didn't invent it then we can't determine its purpose and we can't determine uh, its definition that it's something that God has given and that he reigns and rules over the third thing to notice here is this is it the words hold fast or cleave in some of your older King James translations if you if you've got that one this morning it literally means this. It means to join together or to glue. In other words, God's intention is that this male and female that he has created, that they would be bound together in, in such a deep, lasting, loving commitment that nothing but death would sever it, that nothing but death would pull it apart, that nothing but death would separate it, that nothing but death would put it, as the old King James says, asunder. That's God's intention. God's intention is, is not that marriage will be treated like a used car, right? And so you get so many miles on the car and you go, well, it's time to trade in, right? To get an upgrade, something with a, with a few less miles, with a little, few more features, right? A few more bells and whistles. And that marriage isn't to be treated like used clothing either, where the, the, the colors in it begin to fade a little bit, maybe a, a few threads get torn out, and so you, you bag it all up, and you bring it, and you drop it off, and you go out and purchase some new ones. Marriage is not intended to be treated that way. Marriage, God says, Jesus says, is intended to be a lasting, enduring relationship that is filled with love and vulnerability and security that's based on covenant and not contract. That's, that's what Jesus says God's design is for marriage. And a part of what this means for us is this, is that marriage, the bond of marriage, God's designed in a covenant relationship where a man and a woman are bound together in one flesh is that they would see 
and that they would stay. They would see and they would stay. In other words, in the context of a covenant marriage where vulnerability is, is at, at, in, 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 at least in, 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 in the way that it's conceived, would be at the highest levels in that relationship. You'd be incredibly vulnerable. That, and then you would see all the blemishes. You would see all the flaws. You would see all the failures. You would see all the sin. You would see all the selfishness. You would see every blemish of their body. You would see every stain on their soul. And you would stay. And you would stay. Listen, I... You would see, every, listen, as Karen and I will celebrate our, our 16th anniversary, yes, <laughs> our 16th anniversary this coming uh, May, and I can tell you this, over the, she hasn't changed a bit since the day we married, so for the better, I've changed for the worse in many ways, as is evident by the 20 pounds that I'm now carrying around that I wasn't carrying whenever we got married. Whenever we said, I do. And listen, but over the course of time, that happens to even the best of us, doesn't it? Is that our bodies begin to break down, blemishes begin to be developed, right? Spots that used to be nice, tight, and toned are now sagging and, and wrinkly, and there's stretch marks, and there's things going on with our bodies over the course of time that weren't there before. And that, you know what covenant does? covenant sees all those things as they're exposed and it stays listen no matter what age-defying creams you use and what plastic surgeries you go through it's a it's it's a battle you're gonna lose brother and sisters (laughs) but covenant sees and it stays it sees all the blemishes But not only does it see the blemishes of the body, but it sees the stains of the soul. It sees even at times whenever your spouse is selfish and is thinking only about themselves. It sees at times the greed that festers in our heart, the anger that erupts. It sometimes even sees the lust that is is running rampant in our lives. And it says, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay, because I pledged and promised in a covenant it sees the blemishes of the body and the stains of the soul and it stays. That's, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And whenever we see that kind of covenant commitment in the context of a marital relationship, we're captivated by it, aren't we? We're captivated by it in great works of literature. We're captivated, captivated by it in great films. When we see seeing and staying, Listen, maybe it's the world that I live in, but I don't watch many movies these days that don't include animated characters, right? But in 2009, Disney Pixar released a movie called Up. And in the opening sequence of that movie, right, as a grown man in my 30s, I barely made it five minutes in without trying to choke back tears or weeping uncontrollably. It's a story of, this, of Carl and Ellie, and they meet as young kids, And as children, they play together and dream about all the adventures they're going to have as explorers off in the wilderness. If you've never seen the movie, I go watch it this afternoon, right? Uh, But but they, they dream about all these things. They grow up and they get married. And there's a sequence in the opening of that film that depicts their marriage, them cutting the cake and celebrating together. And then they come home and they find this old, abandoned, decrepit home that they restore and breathe life into once again. And as they bring this home back to, this house back to life, they create a home together. 
And it shows them like laying, you know, all holding hands, laying on the blanket, staring up at the clouds with the picnics, and they're imagining all the clouds turning into animals and what animals did they see in the clouds and all this kinds of stuff. And then it shows them as it cuts to the next little scene of them painting a nursery. And the very next pan that it moves away from the nursery, it moves to the scene of her weeping in a doctor's office as she has miscarried. And they find out they're infertile and they, can no, they can't have children. The next scene is her sitting in the front lawn, staring off onto the street. And her husband, Carl, comes over, places his hand on her, on her shoulder. And she looks up at him as if there's just an exchange of a look of understanding and love and commitment and service and sacrifice. And then it fast forwards to them dreaming about what their life will be like one day together. They can't have children, so they're going to explore the world and go all these places. So they start a collection, this little fund jar, right? This little glass jar they drop all their coins in. But over the course of time, they have to shatter that jar for flat tires and to repair roofs and to do all these emergencies that arise. To where they're finally now old and gray together, dancing in the living room of this home that they had restored and breathed life into. And then the next scene is them walking up the same hill that they lied, laid on as they were younger, a younger man and a younger woman, a younger husband and wife, and she can't make it up the hill any longer because she is ill. And the next scene is her lying in bed with him holding her hand, both of them now in their 80s, him holding her hand until she dies. The final scene of that sequence is him sitting in the foyer of the funeral home surrounded by flowers and balloons, grieving the loss of his wife. And if, listen... I'm about to just start crying, telling you about the scene in the movie, much less watching it. But the reason Disney gets us, right, they drag us into that story, is because what you're witnessing there is what covenant is meant to be. It's seeing and staying, not only through the romantic comedies, right? Most of us watch romantic comedies and we see all the good things and the, the, the joyful things, right? There's all these butterflies and the happily ever afters. We don't see the pain and the struggle and the hardship and the difficulty that marriage involves. We don't see the sickness and the service. We don't see those things. But we see it there. And it's, a, it's, it's the most beautiful thing in all of creation. The most beautiful thing in all the world. And here's why. It's the most beautiful thing in all of creation because it's a reflection. It's a reflection of the seeing and staying love of Jesus for his church. See, marriage was never intent to, intended to be just about you and I. Marriage was intended to be a reflection and picture of the relationship that Jesus has with his people. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 31 and 32, the Apostle Paul writes these words as he speaks about husbands and wives. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, the two becoming one flesh. But I say that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his people, of the seeing and staying love of God, that God would see all the flaws. He would see all the blemishes. He would see all the stains on our soul. He would see every sin that we have ever committed, that we are committing now and know that we will commit in the future, and that he would pledge his love and loyalty, affection and allegiance to us by sending his son to die in our place in sacrifice, in service, and to rise 
rise up from the grave, that we might be raised to live a new kind of life that Jesus would see and he would stay. That's why. That's why it's the most beautiful thing in all of creation. That kind of love. And Jesus, when they say, hey, weigh in, Jesus. When is it okay to divorce? And when is it not okay? Jesus says, let me take you back to the beginning. This is what God intends. This was his design. And it's the most beautiful thing you could ever lay eyes on. Marriage is a covenant. Second thing Jesus gets to in the text is he speaks of divorce. And if marriage is a covenant, divorce is an amputation. It's an amputation. Look at the end of verse 6 when he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, God says, let not man divide what God has decreed. Let not man sever what God has stitched together. Let not man cut away that which God has joined together. The two becoming one flesh, so that to divide one out from that is like losing a limb. It's like an amputation. And amputations, listen, if you go to a doctor and the first thing out of his mouth is we should cut it off, you probably need to find another doctor, okay? That doctor's not going to be in practice for very long if his first and best option is amputation, Right? Get a little tennis elbow, let's just cut the thing off. Right? You shouldn't have been playing tennis as much as you did. Get a little tendonitis in your foot, right? just cut the thing off. You shouldn't have been running. Right? Whatever, just, just cut it off. Right? That, that, that dude's not going to be around for very long. Or that lady, right? not going to be around for very long. Because divorce is always the last, or, or amputation is always the last option and so is divorce. Listen, there are sometimes where amputation is absolutely necessary because of the, 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 just the, the, the gross infection that is there. But it's always the last option because amputations are painful. Amputations are permanent. And Jesus says there are, on, on a couple of exceptions... There are a couple of exceptions to the rule of marital covenants lasting until death do us part. And he says, one of them is adultery. There's sometimes in which sin is so egregious and sin is so infectious within a person's life that the right thing to do is to cut it off. But it's never the first thing to do. It's never the first thing to do. Several years back, I met a woman um, who had uh, faithfully been married to a spouse for a number of years and um, he, by all intents and purposes, was not a believer uh, from, from all the fruit that you saw in his life. But one of the things that, that, that she began to witness was that he, he committed adultery and then he came back and said he was sorry. And then he committed adultery again and came back and said he was sorry. And, he, and it was this repetitive cycle of adultery without repentance. There might have been remorse, but there was no real repentance in the relationship. He was not turning from sin to trusting in Jesus to honoring his spouse. And whenever you see that kind of repetitive adultery without repentance, then the, 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 the proper prescription is an amputation. But it's never the first one. God's intention and his ideal is always reconciliation. 
that you pursue reconciliation in the context of the relationship because amputations, again, are permanent and they are painful. See, what happens in a divorce oftentimes is an individual says, I see, but I'm not staying. In other words, I see the flaws, I see the blemishes, I see the stains, but I'm not going to stay. And a part of it is because they believe the lie that if they get out of this relationship and they remove themselves from this person who has these flaws, these blemishes, these stains, and they join themselves to another person, that this person is not going to have flaws or blemishes or stains. But the reality and the truth is this, is that while this person person B may not have the same flaws, the same blemishes, or the same stains. Their souls, just like everyone else's, have been stained by the fall and the introduction of sin into the world, and they will have blemishes, and they will have flaws as well, although they may not be the same as the person you were married to before. That if I could just get out of this relationship because of these flaws, then I will be more satisfied, fulfilled, I will be happy in this new relationship. Well, a year into that new relationship, all of a sudden flaws begin to emerge, blemishes begin to boil up. And it, oftentimes it creates a repetitive cycle so that after the first divorce, there's a second one and a third one. And I've met people who have been through four and five spouses. Because they keep looking for the perfect person. But what they often don't recognize as well is that as they move from relationship to relationship, their flaws keep coming with them. (laughs) They keep coming with them. From relationship to relationship to relationship, looking to be happy when oftentimes the common denominator and that relationship eroding is their issues, not the spouse's issues as they move from person to person to person to person. See, listen, listen what, what if you change the scorecard a little bit in your marriage? What if your, the scorecard in your marriage was not the degree of happiness that the relationship brings you, but the degree of holiness that it fosters within you? See, what if God's design for marriage was not first about your happiness, but it was first about your holiness? So that you would learn in the context of that relationship what unconditional love looks like. That you'd be formed into the image of Christ. That you would learn what it is to covenant and stay. Even through the valleys. So that you can enjoy some of the mountaintops. But if you keep moving from relationship to relationship looking for a mountaintop after mountaintop after mountaintop but never enduring the valleys then those mountaintops will be short-lived and and they will not be as fulfilling as you think that they will be. They will have diminishing returns in your life. See, God's intention for your, your marriage relationship is that it would be a sanctifying, have a sanctifying effect in your life. Listen, there are things that I've seen in the last 16 years that I would never have seen apart from my spouse. Never have seen those things in my soul. Never would have recognized those things in my life. But if every time there was friction, listen, even though I'm a pastor, my wife can attest, there is friction in our relationship. If every time there were friction in the relationship, if we moved on looking for someone else and amputated limb after limb after limb, 
then those flaws within me would have never come to the surface. I never would have had to face them and deal with them. And the same is true for you. Marriage is a covenant. Divorce is an amputation. And Jesus gives the exception clause here, except for adultery. And here's why I think he says that. Because in the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. And so if you committed adultery in the Old Testament, you would have been stoned. You would have been killed. And so your spouse would have been free to remarry. And there is a death of sorts that occurs even, even today with when adultery is committed in a relationship. A death of trust. It's a death of, a death of love. A death of allegiance. You don't know if you can move to that per, toward that person with intimacy and vulnerability anymore because you've been so wounded But even though Jesus gives a permission, he doesn't give a mandate to divorce. I know people who have been through the throes of adultery that God has redeemed and renewed and restored the relationship. And it is fuller now than it was before. Jesus gives the exception here. Paul, later on in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, talks about the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. So he's not envisioning you, like if you're single now, he's not envisioning you getting married to an unbelieving spouse and then them abandoning you. He's envisioning two spouses who got married whenever they were both unbelievers and then one of them coming to faith in Jesus over the context of that marriage and the, 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 believer, the unbelieving spouse going, look, I didn't sign up for this Jesus stuff. I'm out. And they abandon the relationship. That's what Paul is envisioning. He says, if, if an unbelieving spouse walks away from you and you cannot reconcile with them, as, no matter the links that you go to, apart from denying the faith, then you're free. So the biblical exceptions are death, divorce, or adultery, and abandonment. See, in Jesus' mind, there's no such thing as irreconcilable differences. There's no such thing as a no-fault divorce. But here's what I'll say before we move on to singleness. Is if you're in the room this morning and you've been through a divorce and you're now remarried and it was not done on biblical grounds, there was no adultery, there wasn't an unbelieving spouse who abandoned you, that the relationship Jesus says here that you entered into began with an act of sin and adultery. But I want you to know that God's grace is sufficient to cover that and His grace is sufficient to empower you in the relationship that you are in now to display to the world the beauties of covenant love. But you've got to own that. You've got to own that. And trust in God's grace for forgiveness and trust in God's grace for empowerment. That the relationship that you're in now would be enduring and lasting and unbreakable and only be severed by death. So marriage is a covenant. Divorce is an amputation. And singleness, in Jesus' own words here, is a calling. Is a calling. I want you to notice what he says in the text as he gets down toward the end of Matthew chapter, that text in Matthew chapter 19 and verses 10 and following. He says, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. 
Jesus says there are several types of singleness that an individual may find themselves in. Some of them may be single not by their choice on the backside of a divorce. Some may be single and never having been married but longing to be. And there may be some who are single because God has called them for the purpose of singleness and celibacy to give their attention and their all their attention and all their affection to God's kingdom work in their lives and through them in the world. So Jesus says they're eunuchs, right? A eunuch was an individual who was celibate, right? Who didn't engage in sexual activity. Um, and, and many times it was because they were missing parts of their body, right? And Jesus says there are some eunuchs who are eunuchs by, not by their own choice. There are some eunuchs who um, have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom and some who have been that way since birth, But I want you to know that no matter what category you may fall in this morning of those individuals who are single, in your singleness, what I want you to know, what I want you to see is that in this culture, not necessarily outside the church, but the culture inside the church, many times we'll say to you that you're not a whole person, right? That you're kind of a second class citizen. That once you get married, then you can serve in the church. Or once you get married, then you can hold some kind of office in the church. Then you can be some kind of leader in the church. But Jesus doesn't say that here, nor does Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. They talk, Paul says, I wish everybody was like I am. Single and could give all of their attention and all of their, their allegiance and all of their loyalty to what God is doing in the world. They could, they, could, they could be free from the anxiety to the married person. Paul actually talks that way in 1 Corinthians 7. He says those who get married, they're going to have anxieties in this world. Right? They're not going to be worried not only about how to please the Lord, but how to please their husband, how to please their wife. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of singleness as a calling. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus speaks of singleness as a calling. But listen, if some of you think, well, I don't, I don't necessarily want that gift. Right? Thank you, Jesus, but I'm not sure that I want that. Right? If there's a deep desire for you to get married and you cannot find God's grace to be sufficient for you in that, it's not saying that God's never going to provide a spouse for you. That he's never going to lead you to someone that you could share that covenant, lasting, enduring, unbreakable relationship with. But at least in this season, he has you single for some particular purpose or some particular reason. That God is providential in your life. In other words, he's Control, in control of your life. He's ruling it. He's reigning over it. And he's doing so for your good, even though you don't see it as good right now, maybe. But if that's you this morning, I want you to know that you're not a second-class citizen. And I also want you to know, I want you to hear this too, that the gift of singleness is not given to you to, for, for as would talk particularly young men in the room, the gift of singleness isn't given to you to play video games for the rest of your life. Right? Or to fish and to hunt for the rest of your life with no strings attached. Right? That's not why you have the gift of singleness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, and Jesus says here, the gift of singleness comes to you so that you could focus your attention and your energies on kingdom work. On kingdom work. And there are some who may be same-sex attracted, and what God's calling on their life is this, is that they would be single and celibate for the sake of God's kingdom rule in their lives honoring Jesus with their bodies honoring Jesus with their minds even though they feel attracted to those who are of the same sex they're going to submit those desires they're not just going to let those desires rule them they're going to rule over those desires and submit them to Jesus bring them under his lordship and authority in such a way that they remain celibate all their lives for the in all their life for the rest of their lives 
because they value the rule and reign of Jesus in their lives more than they value the expression of those desires. Because there's a, a, a teaching within our culture that says that if you're going to be a whole person, if you're going to be a full person, you have to give full vent to all your sexual desires. And Jesus says, no, it's not true. Jesus was a single man and celibate all of his life, and he was the most whole human being to ever walk the face of the earth. In some churches, Jesus would show up as single and celibate. They'd be like, dude, you can't serve in leadership until you get married. That's not the picture of singleness that Jesus paints, nor the Apostle Paul does. It's a great high calling. So I want to close with this. A couple of kind of application points. If you're married this morning, here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want, you to, I want to challenge you to put the beauty, I want to challenge you to put the beauty of covenant love on display in your marriage by seeing and by staying. That within that context of that covenant, there'd be a vulnerability there because of the promise that you made to covenant with one another. And through that vulnerability of seeing all the flaws and blemishes that you would stay And listen, I'm not saying there's not difficult seasons in marriage. I'm not saying that there's not hard, hard things to work through. I'm not saying that there's even times where there might not be room, reason and room for separation. If you're in the midst of an abusive relationship, I would counsel you all day, every day to separate and protect yourself physically. But I would not counsel you to move toward divorce. I'm not saying there's not hard things, but see those things and stay. Listen, if you're in the midst of a hard season, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't do it privately. Don't walk through that season alone. Right? Wade into Christian community where you begin to open up your life to other people and allow them to see so that they can see and stay with you. Right? There will be covenant friendships there that are formed. As you become honest and transparent and vulnerable about the challenges in the marriage. And so that other men can come around your husband or other women can come around your wife. And they can walk alongside of you in the midst of that. Encouraging you. And listen, if you're in the, if you're in the middle of a hard season as a husband and wife as well. Here's what, another thing I want to encourage you to do. It's a point of application. Don't try and change your spouse to form them into your image. Listen, that creates so much hardship in marriages. Right? Because we want to see our wife or our husband formed into our image, not formed into Jesus' image. We want to see them look like us and not look like Jesus. We want to see them think like us and not think like Jesus. We want to see them act like us and not act like Jesus. We want to see them enjoy the same things that we enjoy and not have their own unique personalities. We want them to be like us and not like Him. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Get on your knees and pray that God would form your spouse into the image of his son and pray that he would do the same in your life. So instead of trying to make them like you, you pray that God would make them like him. If you're in the context of a hard season, I would love to visit with you this morning. I'll be just outside these doors as you leave. And I would also love to help move you toward getting help. If you need to get help at a, in a professional level, I'd love to refer you to some professional counselors who can work through those issues with you. And we as a church would love to come around you and support you as you work through that as well. If you're divorced this morning, 
If you're divorced this morning, here's what I want you to know. And here's what I want you to know that you are loved by God and you're loved by the people of Redeemer. And I want you to allow that to sit on you for a moment. And if you're here on the backside of a remarriage that didn't, uh, and your first marriage didn't end in a biblical fashion, I want you to know this. That God is able to empower you. That this one, that this marriage that you're in now, as he forgives the sin of adultery that began it, he's able to empower you in this one to display the beauty of Jesus' love for his church to the world. He's able to restore some of the years the locusts have eaten in your life. And if you're single this morning, I want to I encourage you to be faithful to Jesus. All right, find family here in the church. If you don't have a family of your own, I want, you, I want to encourage you to renounce a hookup culture that engages in casual sexual encounters to give full vent to our sexual desires. Because as we talked about last week, sex is not the culmination of romantic attraction or physical chemistry. Sex is the consummation and the glue that binds together covenant union between husband and wife. Used outside of that, you know what sex is? It's an audition for commitment. Do I perform well enough for them to accept me and hang on to me? Used inside of a covenant union. You know what sex is? It's a glue that binds together husband and wife. Because there's absolute physical vulnerability there where you become naked before them and every blemished flaw is seen. And they stay. Because they're not looking for an audition tape. But they've pledged their love and loyalty and affection and allegiance to you. And only you. And so there's enough security in that relationship to be fully and freely vulnerable. I don't know where you are this morning. I know many of you are married. I know some of you are single. Some of you may be in the room and divorced or on the backside of that in a new marriage. As God continues to, to take what he says in his word and press that into your life, remember that he has not given it to you to hurt you. He's given it to you to heal you. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your word, for its truth, for the way that it convicts, for the way that you compassionately put us back together. And Father, I pray that if there's those in the room this morning who have never known a kind of seeing and staying love, whether it be in their marital relationships or dating relationships or in the context of previous marriages. God, I pray that they would see that seeing and staying love through your son. And as they tasted that seeing and staying love through your son, that they would be able to experience and express that love in their marital relationships. And God, I pray that you'd mark us out as a people, as a church, a people who see and stay. See all the flaws and all the failures, all the blemishes and stains, and we stay. And as such, we'd be a countercultural community that is incredibly bright and salty in this world. I pray that it would be a safe place for single adults to know that they are valued, that they are loved, 
that they are not second-class citizens, a safe place for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction to come and find family as they resist and bring their desires underneath the lordship and reign of Jesus. That this would be a safe place for those who are wanting to fight against sin and against all the ways that it would mar their lives. Where we can be vulnerable and transparent and find other men and women in the context of community who would see and stay with us. We pray this in Jesus' name.